Well, thank you for that warm welcome. I come to you off the back of the chaos and the joy of what it is to have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And uh, let's just say this morning didn't go quite to plan. But here I am, great to be um, amongst family really all over the world as we connect on the basis of having um, known the person of Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for being so gracious to me in welcoming me. As, uh, um, as has just been said, my name is Tanya Walker. I'm the Dean of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, which is the training programme that the Zacharias Trust runs in the UK. And it's my joy and my privilege to get to lead the team that um, recruit and train really world-class evangelists, uh, about 30 of them a year, um, and to see them released into their call throughout the world. I've been asked this morning to speak to the title, Isn't Faith in God Intellectual Suicide? And I have to say that whenever I hear a question like this, it does make me smile a little bit at the wording of the question, because we tend not to realize that if you take God out of the picture, if you take God out of the equation, you also remove with it any reason to trust our reason. Professor John Gray puts it like this. He's a hugely respected political philosopher in the UK and an ardent atheist, and he puts it in his usual pithy way when he says, the human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. It's a staggering claim by one of the leading atheists in this country, and he's absolutely right. Once you've taken God out of the picture and you say that our minds are simply the product, our minds and our lives are simply the product of blind matter, time and chance, doing their thing, then you have to conclude that our brains are geared towards the processes of survival. That's their aim. That's their focus. They're not necessarily geared towards analytical or logical truth or the processes of reason. So you'll be glad to know I'm going to park that thought on one side, assume that my mind and your mind is working fine, and address the topic for this morning. Some of you will be aware that the Oxford Dictionary announces every year the word of the year. And in November 2016, just a few months ago now, Oxford Dictionary announced that the word of the year for 2016 was post-truth post-truth, a culture or a set of circumstances in which appeals to emotion are more important than objective facts or reality, a culture or a set of circumstances where appeals to emotion are more important, considered more important than objective facts. It's a way of trying to decipher what has happened to our political systems over the past year. There was a huge buzz around this announcement. Of course, I'm referring to a buzz in the world of geekdom, but a buzz nevertheless that post-truth was the word that was considered to best describe our culture and our set of circumstances. And I read loads of commentaries around this word. Political analysts were talking about what this might mean for us, that we have now been defined by this word post-truth and social commentaries and so forth. And I was so interested that in all of the commentary, in all of the analysis, there was this huge backlash against emotions, a huge backlash against feelings, as though our deep longings were somehow irrelevant or unimportant, that they were misguided somehow. 
And I found that really interesting as I was reading all of this analysis. There was just one sentence in one blog that hinted at a different order. And I found it profound and it said this. A post-truth culture that elevates feelings over facts gives us only half the picture. And in being half right... It's all wrong. Now, what stood out at me was actually not the sentiment the author was trying to get to, but the sense that he had at least seen that the picture was half right, that it was half the picture, that our longings, our emotions, our feelings are at least half the picture. They are half right, although when made to be the whole picture, they become all wrong. And I think his wording made me think about what does it mean to be truly rational, What does it mean to be a truly reasoned human being? You see, if you have a system where feelings trump facts, you have a completely irrational system. But if you have a system in which brute facts trump and eradicate all feelings, then you begin to have extremely sterile systems that don't actually speak to who we are as people, how we experience and live in this world, what our real, true life looks like. And I've been asking the question, is there a reality that takes both seriously? Is there something that is true to the facts and true to life? Is there something, in other words, that makes sense of the whole? And this morning, I want to just expand on that a little bit and speak to these two different headings, true to the facts and then true to life, and then wrap them up in my experience of what it has been to encounter the person of Jesus Christ. So true to the facts. One of the most central questions of philosophy is the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And this isn't the pure philosophical form of the argument, but let me give it to you in shorthand. Really, there are only three possible answers that you can give to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Either the universe has always existed, it's eternal, or the universe popped into existence out of nothing, or the universe was created by God. These are really fundamentally kind of your three basic options. Now, the first option that the universe has always existed, that it's eternal in its being, has been discredited by the findings of modern science. So we find ourselves with two options. Either the universe popped into existence out of nothing, or the universe was created by God. And I want to read you an article written by a colleague of mine, Dr. Vince Vitale, a former Oxford lecturer, on his thoughts on this and how it turns out we all believe in miracles. He writes this. John Annex, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, recently debated Princeton professor Peter Singer, one of the world's most influential atheists. John challenged him to answer this question, why are we here? And here's how Peter responded. We can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating. And I don't think we need any mysterious or miraculous explanation for that. And I remember thinking, how does this somehow getting self-replicating molecules in the primeval soup not count as a mysterious explanation? That sounds a lot like a virgin birth to me. Or take the brilliant Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking's latest attempt to propose an atheistic explanation for our universe. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. 
Spontaneous creation is the reason that there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. Is that any less miraculous of a birth than the account from Luke chapter 1? We live in a miraculous world. Regardless of whether you're a theist, an atheist, or an agnostic. There's no getting around that fact. It's not, we- it's not a matter of whether we believe in a virgin birth. It's just a matter of which virgin birth we choose to accept. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I liked the idea of it, this intriguing sense of, in a sense, we all do believe in a virgin birth, a miraculous beginning to the earth. Either the earth just spontaneously popped into creation, a virgin birth out of nothing, or an almighty creator God created us and all that we see in the heavens and the earth. Given that option B, the, the suggestion that the universe created itself, popped into existence out of nothing, breaks the most foundational, fundamental of laws, both in the world of philosophy and in the world of science, that things simply do not just spontaneously create themselves out of nothing. I have begun to find the third option, that there is a creator God who created everything that we see. Very intriguing. But it's more than simply the existence of matter that we have to contend with. Life exists. Human life, that's a far greater feat. I'm no scientist, but I've read enough to know that there are 11 fundamental constants and realities that make life possible. Any of these numbers, any of these constants, if they were altered by even the most minuscule amount, life would simply implode or explode. You would have no life of any kind. Let me give you just a few examples. Firstly, we have the gravitational constant. If it varied by just one part of the fraction that's on the screen at the moment, just one part by 1 over 10 to the 60, life would not be possible on this earth. Let me give you an image of what that number actually means. Cover America with 50p coins all the way to the moon. Cover another billion continents the size of America with coins similarly stacked to the moon. Color one coin red, red, blindfold a friend and get her to pick out the coin. The odds that she will get that right are one in 10 to the power of 40. That's the level of precision, one in 10 to the 60. That's just one of these 11 constants that come together to make life possible. If there was a change to the expansion rate of the universe by one in 10 to the 120, there would be no life. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed by one in 10 to the 10 to the 123, there would be no life. Let me just tell you what this number looks like. This number is impossible to write down in its normal decimal point way because there are not enough particles in the universe to write the number of zeros that you would need to write this number out longhand. 1 over 10 to the 10 to the 123. 11 such constants come together. All of them have to be exactly right in order to make life possible. 
And it's because of such staggering, mind-blowing odds that many mathematicians prefer to talk about mathematical impossibilities rather than improbabilities when they talk about the possibility of life. I found myself concluding that I simply do not have faith. I'll misdefine faith for the moment, blind faith, faith against the odds, faith against the evidence. I simply do not have faith enough to believe that life came about by chance against such staggering odds. Let me try and give it to you another way and then I'll move on. Imagine if I came to you one day with an encyclopedia and you said to me, oh, where did you get that from? And I say, you won't believe this, but there was an explosion in the printing factory just down the road and there were multiple explosions actually, but eventually, I know it just sounds incredibly improbable, but the ink and the glue and the paper at some point in midair when there was this incredible explosion just came together and landed in my hand in the form of this book. I'm guessing that none of us in this room for even for a moment would consider that to be a rational explanation for the complexity of an encyclopedia. I think it's telling of our lack of confidence in our own ability to reason, in our own intellects, that what we would not accept as rational explanations here in the earth that we understand and, and engage with, we begin to think plausible if you just write it large into a cosmic universe where we begin to think, oh, maybe we don't understand how it works. Maybe there's a different law that makes that possible. Maybe there's something else that my brain can't handle because it's so big and so complex. I want to suggest to you it's just the encyclopedia and the print factory just multiplied a few times. I don't find it convincing. True to the facts. Uh, true to the facts. What about true to life? I found in myself great heights and great depths. There is something of a sense of significance, a sense of grandeur. It's so silly, really, when you consider what a minuscule dot we are in the universe, that we have still this unexplainable sense of sacredness, is a word we'd almost use. There's, we feel that human beings have significance. We feel that they matter in this great big cosmic system, even though we know, rationally speaking, that we're a dot less than a dot compared to this vast expanse. One of the writers of the Psalms, writing centuries ago, voices something of the emotion that we all resonate with. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's this grandeur that's completely disproportionate to size. And nothing in a world without God accounts for that sense of these heights, these heights that describe to us what we feel about human beings. But it's not just the grandeur, it's the depths the depravity, there's something that has gone horribly wrong in our world. I wonder if you've noticed that 
no matter how scary the monster in the movie, the scariest monsters are always human. There's something about the evil that human beings can engage with, inflict, carry out, that is truly horrifying even to us. Richard Dawkins writes this kind of knockout sentence in his book, River Out of Eden. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's hard to believe he could be serious. No evil and no good. I don't know what image will capture this for you, but I don't think I will ever forget the moment that I saw the picture of that little Turkish boy drowned at sea, washed up on shore. ISIS on the one hand, a living hell causing the displacement of tens of thousands of people, and on the other hand, an international community either unable or unwilling to be much help, standing by, watching. I want to suggest to you that you have to kill off a part of your humanity to say that there are no intrinsic evils in the mix. And yet Dawkins is being completely consistent with an atheistic worldview. What is evil in a world without design and without purpose? The best that you can come up with is that evil is whatever we have societally decided it to be. But, you know, it's not just the evil out there that bothers me. I think all of us, if we are honest with our deeper selves, experience something of a struggle within. Some months ago, I was speaking in a conference in the States. I had this extraordinary conversation with a woman over lunch. And as she told me something of what had been a 10-year journey for her and ultimately described her battle with shame, she used that word, shame. I thought, wow, I haven't heard that word in context outside of the church for a long time. Her battle with shame. She ended up weeping and saying, you know what? I don't think I've ever really seen the problem before. Maybe it never occurred to me that there was a solution. Shame. Albert Einstein famously said that if he had one hour to solve a problem on which his life depended, he would spend 55 minutes getting to grips with what the problem actually was, and then five minutes solving it. Is it possible that we have completely missed the heart of the problem? We're a culture, a generation, that like to deal with guilt and shame by telling ourselves that this is just a societal construct that's been put on us by people out there. I wonder, is that really the truth of the matter? Uh, a few months ago, I was speaking with a philosophy professor, a lecturer, and he was talking to me about his journey. He had been an atheist, and he was making his journey out of that worldview and exploring other worldviews. And he said something that struck me as particularly profound. He said, seeing ourselves as we really are, seeing ourselves as we really are, is the beginning of sanity and rationality. 
Seeing ourselves as we really are is the beginning of sanity and rationality. I wonder if it is appropriate that we see guilt and we experience shame. I wonder if that tells us something of the problem, the real problem, and leads us therefore to a more rational way of addressing the situation. I guess I'm asking, is it possible that we thought we were free, experimenting, creating, defining ourselves, our worlds, and actually we find ourselves hollow and empty and wondering whether things that we thought we were controlling, experimenting, defining, shaping, actually, is it possible that they are defining and shaping us? Is it possible that you're sitting here this morning and you're caught up in patterns of behavior that you thought you were in control of, but actually they are controlling you? And is there any way out of the cycles? Is there any way out of the brokenness? Where does this marred sense of grandeur come from? And can it be restored? Can it be fulfilled somehow? I have questions about meaning, significance, good and evil, purpose, suffering, guilt, shame, that atheism doesn't touch. A number of years ago, I read a series of interviews with prominent atheists in all sorts of different fields. Let me read to you the words of Alam Shaha. He's the author of the Young Atheist Handbook on the experience of being an atheist. He wrote this, Yes, of course I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. But the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. Cognitive dissonance? Embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. I teach, being creative. I don't mean that in a poncy hipster way. I mean make a curry, build some bookshelves, write a poem. And most importantly, find people you love and like and spend lots of time with them. I regularly have people over for dinner, throw parties for no other reason than I just want to spend some time surrounded by the people I love. And if you're really stuck, eat rice and dal. Physically filling yourself with the food you love really does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. I remember I had to read it more than once because the shock of the words just couldn't quite compute what I was reading. Cognitive dissonance? Embrace it. You have to leave your head and heart behind. I think I've come to the persuasion that atheism addresses the deepest longings of our hearts by explaining them away. You feel you have significance, but you don't. You feel there must be meaning, but there isn't. You feel guilt and shame, but these are just culturally constructed. These are learned behaviors. You feel your brokenness at times in a way that makes you feel something has gone fundamentally wrong with our world, but it hasn't. This is just the natural processes of evolution working its way out. Atheism addresses the deepest longings of our hearts by explaining them away. To be a Christian is to experience the incredible relief of no longer needing to explain away but simply to explain. We feel we have significance and 
intrinsic worth because we were made by an almighty creator God who loved us and made us in his image. We feel our lives have meaning because they do. God made each of us with purposes in mind. We feel guilt and shame because we were made for connection with God and we turned our backs on him and broke that connection and we feel our brokenness because we are. We're broken. That process broke us. Michael Ramsden puts it like this. Imagine if one day day you decide you're going to break the law of gravity. You put a big S on your chest, don the obligatory red pants outside your trousers, the big red cape. You find a 10-story building. You run to the top of the building. You're about to break the law of gravity. You run. You jump. What will you break? You see, we've turned our backs on God tried to break his law, but found in the process that we've broken ourselves instead whilst proving his law. Now we live in a broken world, and the Bible tells us this has broken the heart of God. But the story doesn't end there. It was to restore that brokenness, to restore the connection, to restore what had been lost, to restore the grandeur, to set the world right again by reconciling us to God. That Jesus, God himself, came into this world, lived the life we ought to have lived. And on the night he was betrayed, took some bread, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. The justice of God, the judgment of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, and the forgiveness of God came together in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Is faith in God intellectual suicide? My own journey is that I have become persuaded that the existence of God is not only the reason I can trust my reason, but is the best explanation of the whole. Let me draw this together. Many of you sitting here I know will already know God and be in relationship with the person of Christ. But some of you may have been thinking about this for a while or you're here with a friend or a family member and you've never really thought through these issues or maybe you thought you had but maybe you're intrigued by something of what I've said. I guess I want to ask the question, if you take everything else out of the picture, the noise and the busyness of life and what other people might think or how they might judge, if it was possible that there really is a creator God, if it's possible that he really does make sense of the whole, if it's possible that he really offers connection, relationship, would you want to know him? There's this famous painting, I'm sure many of you will be aware of it, Light of the World by Holman Hunt, it's up on the screen there. The painting depicts the words from the book of Revelation where it says that Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and knocks and if anyone will let him in, he will come and make our home in us and eat with us and we with him. And in the painting, there's no, no um, door handle on this side of the door The handle is on the inside. Jesus doesn't force his way in. He doesn't open the door himself. He stands and knocks. 
and leaves it to us to think, do we want that connection? Do we want that restoration? Do we want that relationship? Do we want to allow him to come in and be in our lives? When Holman Hunt presented that picture, that painting to St. Paul's Cathedral, he presented it already mounted with the beautiful gold frame and the mounting. And years after he died, because of the smog around St. Paul's, they had to clean that painting and they gingerly took it down and took off all the layers and had it cleaned. And they saw that scribbled in the margin where no one was meant to see it in the mounting were written these words from Holman Hunt, forgive me, Lord Jesus that I kept you waiting so long. I want to just give us an opportunity to respond. And I wonder if I can ask you just to close your eyes and I'm going to pray for us. And leave a moment for each of us to respond in our own hearts, however we feel. Lord Jesus... Is it possible that you stand even this morning at our hearts, at the door of our hearts and knock? And we just say to you, God, we want to open our door. We want to allow you to come in. We ask you to come and make your home in us, to come and eat with us. We long to know you more. We long to be in relationship with you. And if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced that before and you're wondering, or do you, do you not want that? I just would like to pray for you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know what to make of that, doesn't know what to make of the person of Christ knocking on our door. I just pray your peace and your guiding hand that would lead them to a saving knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.